Grace, mercy, and God's peace be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our text for this morning is from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 22, uh, the words that Pastor Dan shared with us earlier this day. Keep your chin up. You know, when our Bible lessons were read just a short time ago, did you realize that about 800 years ago, you couldn't have done that? And you know why you couldn't have done that? Why you couldn't have turned to 1 Peter 3 or any of the other lessons back then? Well, because there were no chapter divisions. They didn't exist. It was one long, run-together uh, writing style. That didn't happen, these chapter divisions, until the year 1227. 1227, when Stephen Langton, Archbishop of Canterbury, went through the Bible and created chapter numbers that we now have and use today. You know, if he hadn't done that, I'd been saying something like, you know, turn to 1 Peter and go through a few pages until you find a sentence that begins with, and whatever it is, and then say, you got it yet? You got it? Okay, okay, now let's go on. So, thank you, Archbishop, for your work. And chapter divisions basically have been a pretty good thing. We can find our way through the Bible. They help us to be able to find places in the books of the Bible that would have been much harder to identify before Archbishop Langdon performed the service for us. Now, being able to find places in our Bible quickly is a main advantage for having our Bibles divided up into chapters and verses. But, and there usually is a but, isn't there? The disadvantage, and it's a disadvantage too, is these are arbitrary divisions. It's not the way they were written by the authors of the Bible. These are arbitrarily divisions. So sometimes these divisions of chapter numbers create a break in the middle of a thought or an idea, and we lose the continuity of what the writer's trying to tell us. Well, I say all of this because that's what happened here in our lesson for this day from 1 Peter chapter 3 and chapter 4. Now, to set the background a bit, the folks that Peter was writing to, were writing to about 2,000 years ago, they're under persecution. And this entire letter, the first of his, of the letters he wrote, is dealing in one form or another with the struggles that the believers at that time were having. Because they were being discriminated against and harassed because of their faith in Jesus. Well, this first part of the first letter is dedicated to reminding the Christians of their blessings. And, and Peter lists a number of those. He says, you've been chosen. Of all the people in the world, you've been chosen. You've been sanctified. Sanctified means to be set aside. You've been given hope in a hopeless world. And then he goes on to say in verse 4, they've received an inheritance that this world can't take away, no matter what. You got it, folks. Nobody can take it away from you. And that's just for starters as far as how Peter approaches this. Now, the reason Peter starts this letter in the way he did is because the Christians were hurting. They were being persecuted for their faith. And Peter wanted to give them hope and an assurance of a silver lining in their dark clouds of life. Now, when folks face hardship and mistreatment because of their faith in any age, what's the question that inevitably surfaces? Probably one that you've asked yourself. little three-letter word. Why? Why? 
Why is this happening to me? Why is God forsaken me? Why isn't God listening to my prayers? Can you relate to that? You see, it wasn't just 2,000 years ago. It's today, isn't it? Now, keep your finger there in 1 Peter 3. And I want you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 39. And I want you to listen carefully as I read the first few verses of this chapter. And you'll hear one phrase that shows up several times as I read it to you. A little challenge here. See if you can figure this one out. Here's how it goes. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph. Hint, hint. And he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, hint, hint, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. Did you catch the hints? <laughs> well, what phrase did you hear repeated in this story? That's right. And the Lord was with Joseph. I mean, this was just two times, but actually a total of four times that phrase, four times that phrase shows up in this chapter 39. Twice while Joseph's a slave and twice while he was a prisoner. Well, why does it focus on that? I mean, four times, he's trying to make a point, right? Why does it show up so often in this story? Well, it obviously wasn't for Joseph's benefit. I mean, he didn't read this story. He lived it. Now, Moses, the writer of this section, he wrote this account, repeated this phrase, so that the folks reading it, and that would be you and me to me thousands of years later, that you and I, as well as everyone who's reading it, would know clearly God himself was there in Joseph's trials and tribulations, as well as the good times which followed. And friends, that same reassurance, that same reassurance is what Peter is highlighting in his letter that we're reading today. And it's the main message I want you to take away with you today. Here it is. God is with you. Don't get discouraged. Don't lose courage. And here's the punchline. Keep your chin up. Listen to our text again from 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 22. Who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good deeds, good behavior in Christ, may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. What's the assumption that Peter is making here? 
The assumption is, if you're a Christian, you will. You will experience suffering. Now, Peter's not saying he, he likes the idea, he's promoting it, but he's making the point that if you're in Christ's family, if you're a believer, if you know that Jesus died on the cross for you, then Satan and his henchmen will be working hard to try and trip you up. They're going to give everything they've got trying to have you turn your back on God and give up your faith. So Peter gets back to his suffering theme in this particular verse. He tells us if Christ suffered in his body, what's the conclusion? Why should any of his followers expect anything less? And we kind of have to nod, don't we? He's right. If the boss is in trouble because of things, because he's doing the right thing, godly thing, why would you and I expect anything less? Would you agree with that? Are there some folks who seem bent toward becoming your enemy just because you're a Christian? You kind of smile and go, well, I don't know. Well, I think so. I do. I don't like it by any means, but I'm convinced it's true. It, it seems like there are folks out there who are just picking a fight if they can because of faith in Jesus. And it's with that thought in mind, I want you to listen to this promise of Proverbs 16, verse 7. It becomes even more special in light of the difficulties that a Christian may have in life. Here's what the writer of Proverbs wrote. When a man's ways are pleasing to whom? The Lord. He makes even his enemies live at peace with him. Woo! I like that. It gives me hope, doesn't it? But then I ask the question, enemies. And I'm going, really? I mean, why would anyone want to be my enemy? I mean, I'm such a nice guy, right? I'm a loving Christian. I'm a nice guy. I mean, wouldn't someone really want to do good to me rather than give me grief? I mean, would someone really be my enemy just because I'm a Christian? I don't know if you thought about it, but I think it's definitely true. They would. And the reason I say that is one of the big reasons folks oppose us as Christians is that they feel threatened by us. They oftentimes feel condemned by the standards we take. They often don't like or agree with the moral principles we use as a basis for our decision-making in life. I'm afraid an awful lot of the folks that are kind of not in Christian, Christianity's corner have this picture in their minds of what we're like. I'm not sure if they have horns and pitchfork in mind, but it almost seems that way. Many folks, sad to say, think we're out to get them. They think it's our life's goal to hurt them, to humiliate them, to condemn them. So they react offensively. Now we're sure into the social media and technology today, aren't we? And I'm told that the social media world, there are some pretty mean-spirited and snarky kinds of folks out there. Christians, sad to say, as well as non-Christians. They say nasty things because, well, I'm not really sure why. But that seems to be the case. Whatever the reason, I don't like it. 
but it seems to be there. Now, we can get all bent out of shape and spend our time fuming and fussing and expressing resentment and feeling, you know, the phrase, here it is, it isn't fair, or as kids would say, it ain't fair. Notice, however, how Peter says that we as sons and daughters of God should respond to these folks. Here it is. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. So that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. You know, this is one of my all-time favorite Bible verses. I even have it printed on my personal stationery. It's a constant reminder to me of how I can live my life. And we're told very clearly in this text how I, as a Christian, should interact with folks. Any and all folks, even those who are hostile towards us. Now, there's two parts to this verse that I want to focus on. The first is, be prepared. Now, that's an old Boy Scout motto that I contend still applies to us today. Myself being a Boy Scout in earlier days, remember that. Be prepared. Be prepared. And as Christians, that applies to us. We should have an answer, Peter says. We should have an answer to why we have hope. You've got hope as a Christian? How come? Why? Well, this isn't an answer to why we go to Zion Lutheran Church or the answer to why we like a particular preacher, or why we like a certain Christian song, elaborate today. <laughs> no, this is the answer about why you believe in Jesus. Why are you taking this Jesus thing so seriously? Be prepared to share what you believe. That's what Peter's saying. Let me clue you in. The sharing thing, it's not just for preachers, folks. It's for every believer, including you. So, be prepared. Now, you're sitting at home there. Hopefully, you're not overly comfortable. But if you are, that's okay, too. But I want you to, to be engaged a little bit. So, I've got a challenge for you. I like giving challenges. I think we often do better when we, we have a purpose and a target for our actions. So here's my challenge for you today. You can start working on it if you haven't already got it in place. I want you to think, that's step one, but, but think through and prepare what I call your elevator statement of faith. Your elevator statement of faith. In other words, something you can say in one minute or less. Something you can state in the time that you might have to share something while standing in an elevator. I'm suggesting three questions should be able to, you can summarize your life, your faith, your relationship with these questions. First of all, why are you a Christian? How come? Why are you a Christian? Secondly, who is Jesus to you? And thirdly, how has your faith in Jesus affected you and your life. In other words, have in your mind a short summary of what you believe when given the opportunity, you can share the great and comforting news of Jesus as the loving Lord and Savior of sinful mankind. So be prepared. Okay, now you got your task for this afternoon, right? Get busy, get thinking. 
Might even write it down. Summarize it and then time it just to see how you do. Well, the second part of Peter's direction for us is an attitude thing. I'm, I'm big into attitude. I think that's so important in life. And this attitude that Peter is talking about concerns how we are to respond to folks who engage with us over faith issues and morality questions. Peter states this. Do this, in other words, giving your answer that you've got prepared, ready? Do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. I love that picture, lion and the lamb, isn't that great? Kind of just the imagery of peacefulness and getting along together. Yeah. So do this with a gentleness and respect. That's the directive. Peter's point's pretty clear, isn't it? Make sure your answer that you're giving and prepared in your discussions, that you're not being a holier than thou and saying, you heathen, you horrible person, I'm so much better than you. Not at all. No matter how you feel about the person or how he or she treats you as you discuss God things, treat him or her how? Gently and with respect. How come? Well, keep in mind, Jesus died for whom? For the world. For God so loved the world. Keep in mind, Jesus died for that person who's attacking you as well as yourself. So when you respond gently and with respect to someone who's prepared to tear into you because uh, you're pulling them off balance, you're making a difference. You're responding in a way they weren't expecting. <laughs> and it can cause them to think, why are you acting this way? Why aren't you attacking me? the way I'm attacking you. Kind of get some thinking, and that can be a very good thing. I think we all agree you can't control someone else's feelings or, or responses that, that, that they may have and how they treat you, but you're in total control of whom? Your actions. You're in control of what? Your words. You're in control of your attitudes. Now, realistically, don't expect that person who's hostile or, or even mean to you to all of a sudden melt into this lovey-dovey, sugar-and-spice-nice kind of person because of what you said. No. But like Jesus' suffering led to triumph and victory, so can yours. Those folks that might be attacking you because of your faith, their actions and attitudes should not determine your actions and attitudes. In fact, it could be in the midst of our suffering and hardship that we can be the most effective in our witness to those who reject God's message. Perhaps our suffering can be used to bring our enemies to God. That'd be pretty good, wouldn't it? In other words, our suffering doesn't have to be in vain. It can actually accomplish powerful results for the salvation of people who have violently opposed God's saving words. You know, and I think keep this in mind when you're talking and interacting with people. Those who persecute us because of our faith, if you're being a jerk, don't be surprised, but if you're trying to do the godly thing, those who persecute you, they have no idea who they're really messing with. Because, friends, we've got power in our corner. We've got the one who overcame death by a victorious resurrection on Easter morning. 
Yeah, we've got Jesus. And we belong to him. Keep your chin up, friends, even in the midst of tough times. Remember, we know the whole story, and we've got a message that needs sharing. May God grant you the courage to do so for Jesus' sake. Amen.